With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. This episode contains details of graphic violence and sexual assault. Please take care where and when you listen. It's the morning of May 31, 1985, in Andalusia, a southern Alabama town that's about an hour and a half away from the Gulf of Mexico. 26-year-old Charles McCrory is at work. He calls his estranged wife, Julie. They're going through a divorce, but still on good terms. Just the night before, he visited Julie and their three-year-old son, Chad, at the home they used to share, watching TV and folding laundry. And now he's calling, hoping she can drop off a breakfast he forgot. But Julie's not picking up the phone. Charles sends his father, C.H., to stop by and check on the house. C.H. finds Chad in his bedroom and a gruesome scene in the living room. Charles's sister, Renee, is at work. About 8.30, I received a call from my dad, and he said he just said, Julie's dead, and I left work and went over to the house. My dad was outside, so I went over. He had taken Chad across the street, and I went over across the street to the neighbors. We didn't really know at that point uh, a lot of details. Paramedics and police are called. They find 24-year-old Julie Bonds lifeless on the floor. She's on her stomach with a red bandana tied around her right wrist. She's been savagely beaten and stabbed multiple times with a bloody wound on the back of her head. In her hand, strands of hair. Charles, meanwhile, is on his way to the house. He's a volunteer paramedic for the Andalusia Rescue Squad, so he hears the call over the radio while driving. He's upset and calls the squad to let them know he's on his way. Detectives question Charles when he arrives. They notice something on his shoe that looks like blood. After seeing the horrific wounds on Julie's body, Charles asks what they think is an odd question, if the injury on the back of her head is what killed her. Though he says he didn't stay at the house, a neighbor will tell police that they may have seen Charles's vehicle in the driveway all night. 
Police suspect Charles murdered his wife, but don't turn up any forensic evidence to prove it. So Charles and his young son Chad mourn the loss of Julie. The family plans and attends her funeral three days later. We were at the funeral as soon as it was over. He went in for questioning. And then that afternoon, later that afternoon, I actually heard from a relative that they were going to arrest him, and then he didn't come back home. Police think they may have a smoking gun, what they believe is a bite mark on Julie's upper right arm. It's bruising around two red marks. Charles is arrested, and a bite marks expert named Dr. Richard Suveron testifies at his trial that the mark was made by Charles McCrory. Dr. Suveron is famous, having testified at a trial that made national news a few years back. The local jury thinks it's a big deal he's come to their small town. But other forensic evidence from the scene tells a different story. Biological evidence investigators pull from the scrapings from under Julie's fingernails is not a match with Charles. Neither is the hair found in her hand. Charles's family doesn't understand why police think he did it. The original accusations were that he had blood on his shoes. That had later been proved that it was just coke. They had checked his car. They had checked his apartment. They had checked her car. They couldn't find, you know, they didn't find anything connecting him. But he's found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. I'm Molly Herman, and this is CSI On Trial. Two or three stains are really not enough to call something an impact spatter from gunshot that's going to put someone in prison the rest of their life. You thought that making up a lie was going to get you home sooner? That's what they told me. What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area? Sir, did you um, see who shot at you? I did not. He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot before I take a plea bargain. The problem with forensic science in the criminal legal system today is that it's an awful lot of forensic and not an awful lot of science. Episode 2, Bite Marks. So where does bite mark evidence come from? The earliest reporting in court dates back to the Salem witch trials. In 1692, the Reverend George Burroughs stood accused of witchcraft and conspiracy with the devil. Several young girls claimed the possessed Reverend had bitten them. He was forced to let the court examine his teeth. According to reports, they literally pried his mouth open to compare his teeth to the bite marks on the girls. They decreed that his bite matched the bite marks, and he was hanged. By the way, years later, he was declared innocent, and Massachusetts compensated his children. But it wasn't until 300 years later that bite marks entered the criminal justice system as evidence. In 1974, prosecutors in Los Angeles exhumed the body of a murder victim weeks after her burial back home in Texas to examine bite marks on her nose. Three dentists then testified those marks were made by one man, and he was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. This set the precedent, the legal rule that has allowed bite mark testimony into U.S. courtrooms. But it's one case, just a few years later, that really made bite mark evidence famous. In 1978, police arrested Theodore Bundy, a clean-cut former law student for multiple kidnappings, rapes, and murders. Theodore Robert Bundy, 
You are charged indictment, two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. I'll plead not guilty right now. Ted Bundy's case was the first nationally broadcast live criminal trial. It was a huge celebrity defendant. That's Chris Fabricant from The Innocence Project. We met him last episode, and he's written extensively on bite mark evidence. At the trial, dentists matched Bundy's teeth to the bite marks on one of his victims. The bite marks that made the dentist stars. One of those star dentists was Dr. Richard Suveron. Armed with a court order, Suveron said he visited Bundy in his Tallahassee jail cell and took impressions of his teeth. Later, Suveron declared, in his opinion, Bundy's teeth left that mark. Bundy himself argued against letting that testimony in today, but the judge ruled against him. Whoever made this mark in the skin, in the flesh, had crooked teeth. That's the same Dr. Suveron that was the prosecution's key witness in the case against Charles McCrory. We'll talk about that more later in the episode. But back to the science. We know how bite mark analysis started, but how does it work? In practice, bite mark analysts match a suspect's dental impressions to the marks of an injury left on a victim's skin. It's based on two fundamental assumptions, that skin can reliably record tooth marks, and that the arrangement and condition of an individual's teeth are unique, like a fingerprint. The problem is, these fundamental principles have never been proven. And for four decades, bite mark analysis has been used in court without rigorous scientific validation of those basic assumptions. Bite marks fall under the umbrella of forensic odontology, a discipline mostly known for IDing victims. Here's Chris again. The only thing that can legitimize a forensic technique is research, scientific research and proficiency testing, neither of which bite marks or the forensic dentists have at all. But there are aspects of forensic dentistry, forensic odontology, that are more credible. So for example, identification of dead bodies is something that forensic dentists can do and it requires some knowledge of dentistry and mouths and teeth. There's an organization that certifies forensic dentists, the American Board of Forensic Odontology, or the ABFO. They've been around since 1976, right before the Ted Bundy trial. But how are forensic odontologists qualified to evaluate bite mark evidence? What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area? And I've never gotten a straight answer. Is it the proximity to teeth? You know what I mean? Because there's nothing about being a dentist that makes you an expert at interpreting an injury on skin. And interpreting those injuries, specifically connecting a bruise or mark on skin to the teeth that created it, is the basis of bite mark analysis. So what happens when they get it wrong? Here's one man who was convicted on bad bite mark evidence. I spent more than half my life in prison behind the opinions and the expert egos of two odontologists. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. 
If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information, so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Dug in a mustache and all that, and top hat. <laughs> it's all going to hell anyways. This is Keith Harward. Keith served over 30 years in prison after being falsely convicted in a murder case. The key piece of evidence used against him, bite marks. I joined the Navy in 1981 in an effort to uh, straighten my life out. And then I was stationed on the USS Carl Vinson CVN-71, which was a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. In 1982, while Keith was serving aboard the Vinson, a man wearing a U.S. Navy white service uniform breaks into a home just down the street from where the carrier was docked, the home of the Perone family. The man bludgeons 30-year-old Jesse Perone to death. Then, over the course of several hours, he sexually assaults 22-year-old Teresa, threatening to kill her three children if she makes a sound. Teresa survives. Her attacker leaves behind a horrific calling card, bite marks all over her legs. Police take photographs to document the bites. Teresa helps detectives create a composite sketch of her attacker. She describes him as a clean-shaven sailor with an insignia on his sleeve that looked like three upside-down Vs. Investigators board the USS Vincent to conduct a very unusual search. They had these dentists and they lined everybody up and they kind of ran them through there and they looked in the mouths and, and looked to see, you know, what they were looking for, which at the time I had no clue what it was, but they were looking for uh, teeth that were crooked or bent or broke or whatever to try to identify someone. Of course, I found this out later on, but at the time I had no clue. It didn't send no red flags up to me. Why would it? I was just doing my thing. Keith wasn't singled out then, but months later, he got into an altercation with his girlfriend. Gladys reported that she had a fight with a boyfriend, and in the course of making that report, she said he bit me. This is Roy Lazarus, who represented Keith at one of his trials. It was a true tussle, as Keith described it in his testimony. It wasn't in the nature of a rape. He wasn't biting her on her thigh. It was just they're fighting with one another, and they apparently did that. Uh, I don't want to say with some regularity. That's unfair. But they, uh, that's sometimes the way they resolved certain things. But the nature of the bite was just simply in, in a defensive nature. He says what he did wasn't right. And when she reported him to the police, he became a suspect in the Perone case. 
The detectives approached me. They said, hey, we wanted to take moles of your teeth. We're trying to clean some stuff up. And I had moles taken, and I went back with my parents to Willis, Virginia. And then several weeks later, uh, the detective from Newport News came and arrested me at their home. The authorities sent a cast of his teeth to a dental expert and a rising star in the growing field of bite mark analysis named Lowell Levine. Levine, too, had testified just a few years earlier in the Ted Bundy trial. Levine told investigators that Harward's teeth matched the marks on Perone's legs. There was also an eyewitness who came forward after the crime became public. Keith's attorney at the time, Kenny Murav, remembers that witness. A shipyard guard named Donald Wade. And Donald Wade observed somebody in the early morning hours of the crime a Navy person coming through his gate with blood on his uniform. And they brought some pictures to Donald Wade, and he identified Keith as being the guy that came through the gate. Even though Keith's mustache didn't line up with Teresa Perone's description of the attacker being clean-shaven, and even though his uniform insignia did not look like upside-down Vs, the case went to trial. Lowell Levine testified for the prosecution, telling the jury that everybody has a set of teeth which are unique and individual, and said that with reasonable medical certainty, Mr. Harward caused the bite marks on the leg. A second expert echoed Levine's testimony. The defense challenged both analysts with the fact that they based their statements on a single photograph. In October 1983, Keith was found guilty of first-degree capital murder and first-degree rape. That was the hand that was dealt me. I said, okay, let me go forward. And I was just waiting for the day I dropped dead. They were going to never let me go. So Lowell Levine's testimony, that everybody has a set of teeth that are unique and therefore so are their bite marks, is that true? I'm Mary Bush. Uh, actually, I should say I'm, I'm Dr. Mary Bush. I'm a dentist. Um, I'm also a forensic dentist, and I am full-time faculty at SUNY at Buffalo School of Dental Medicine. I'm Peter Bush. I'm a research scientist at the University of Buffalo, and um, we've produced some work which I, we believe is fairly significant, um, both in advancement of victim identification in forensic dentistry. The husband and wife team, thanks to a nudging from a persistent student who wanted to study bite marks, end up taking on a huge project. So we started um, looking into the literature and we realized there really wasn't a lot of published papers in the area of bite marks. There almost appeared to be a lag in the field, meaning that some of the papers came out in the early 70s and there wasn't much going through through the 80s and the 90s. They wanted to have as much data as possible, so they collaborated on some of their work with David Sheets. So I am a professor of physics and of data analytics here at Canisius College. I'm the director of a graduate program in data analytics. So one of the things we looked at was simply um, is, are there people out there whose dentitions really are not distinguishable from one another, right? There had been the claim within the forensic literature of uniqueness of the human dentition, meaning that everybody has a unique dentition. Dentition means how teeth are arranged in the mouth. And we built up some really big databases, right? A number of different databases. So what we saw was that in reasonably sized data sets, say 400 sets of dentition from a random population, you'd find one or two individuals in that who had a match within the population. So in other words, you couldn't tell their teeth apart. 
the cutting portion of their teeth. The, the section's gonna leave a bite and a bite mark apart. Even with 2D or 3D data. We also did look at some people who had orthodontic treatment, which is kind of neat, right? And you know, we had 110 casts of people who'd had orthodontic treatment, and about 40 of them had matching bites. So orthodontics works, right? Because they try to kind of make people's teeth uniform and consistent, and they do a good job of it, and you, you can't tell their bite marks apart. So depending on what the population is, and there are gonna be some level of unrelated people who leave the same bite mark. That's what it comes down to. That means multiple people could leave a bite mark that looks the same to investigators. Mary and Peter also focused on what seems like a simple question. We decided to start with some very basic research. The nature of the skin and how does skin respond to when bitten. To create the bite markings, they built a sensitive mechanical device. It's a precise metal clamp that acts like a human jaw and holds a mouthful of molded teeth. But they didn't get reliable matches. The Bushes learned that skin distorts and stretches, and when it stretches, it moves differently in different directions. We found that all of the bite marks that we were test biting with looked different from the set of teeth that actually created those bites. They were thorough, changing the position of the teeth and even removing teeth to see what would be reflected in the bite marks. Some of the bites looked like the, the teeth were still there, even though they were not part of the biting dentition. Mary and Peter found no two sets of bite marks made by the same set of teeth looked the same. Basically, they disproved the idea that bite marks left on skin are conclusively unique to individuals. The Bushes began publishing the results in scientific journals in 2009. Soon after, they were being asked to testify in cases but prosecutors and bite mark analysts pushed back, saying that this kind of work done in a laboratory isn't comparable to the real world. Most of that criticism comes from the organization that certifies forensic dentists, the ABFO. So when we hear you know, derogatory terms and we're using dead skin and we're using a device, but we're like, yes, but we're getting this level of distortion using these simplistic devices that we can't possibly make it better by adding more variables. Meaning that if you're seeing these results in a lab where you can control all factors, logic would tell you the problems only get worse in the real world. Chris Fabricant from The Innocence Project. We deal with bite marks that are partially inflicted during a violent struggle, after healing, after decomposing. All the things that make bite marks impossible were what they claimed were the reasons why you had to ignore and discredit the Bush research. So it was like kind of a judo move, right? And so that they use the basic tenets of science against the scientists to discredit their own science. We reached out to several bite mark analysts to see what they had to say about bite marks and to explain the process. But all of our interview requests were turned down or ignored. Which brings us back to Keith Harward, Years into his prison sentence, another inmate suggests he contact the Innocence Project, a nonprofit that works to exonerate the wrongly convicted. They took up the case, and his legal team found a new piece of evidence in Keith's case file. The forensic examiner on the blood noted that there were certain types of secretions that would not have been consistent with Keith's blood type, and they didn't disclose that. That's huge. That creates doubt. His new defense team got a court order for DNA testing. 
science that hadn't existed at the time of his original trial in 1983. The result? The analysis definitively excluded Harward as the source of blood and semen from the crime scene. Just as he had always claimed, Keith was innocent. Not only did the DNA clear Keith, it identified the actual suspect, someone who already had their DNA in the system, someone, unsurprisingly, who had been convicted of violent crimes. Defense attorney Kenny Morav. A very bad criminal by the name of Jerry Crotty, who was a multiple offender. There was a solid match on him as being the perpetrator. He was a, a crew member with Keith. He was on the Vinson. But Crotty died in an Ohio prison in 2006. In 2016, the Virginia Supreme Court issued Keith Harward a writ of actual innocence. He had been in prison for 33 years. Why use bite mark evidence when just this year alone, two other people besides myself have gotten out and bite mark evidence was used in the trial? How many people have to be wrongly convicted before they realize that this stuff's all bogus? It's all, it's all made up. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Back to the case of Charles McCrory. You heard about him in the beginning of this episode. He's been arrested and charged with the murder of his wife, Julie Bonds. Here's Chris Fabricant again. There is no eyewitness. There was no confession, there was no forensic evidence, and there was no motive. And so the idea, apart from the fact that they were going through a divorce, but there was nothing about the divorce that suggested it had ever been violent or that there was any kind of motive that Mr. McCrory would have had to kill his ex or his wife. When they noticed an injury on the body that looked to somebody like a bite mark, and I, th I have looked at it very carefully more than once, and it looks nothing like a bite mark to me, and I've seen more than your average lawyer, that's for sure. But they got that bite mark evidence, and they shipped it off to Dick Suveron. Dr. Richard Suveron, the forensic dentist you heard about earlier that testified in the Ted Bundy trial. He took some images, looked at the images, took a mold from Mr. McCrory's teeth, and opined that 
It indeed was a bite mark, that it was inflicted by Mr. McCrory's teeth, and that it was inflicted at the time of death. That's Mark Loudon Brown. I'm a lawyer at the Southern Center for Human Rights. So Dr. Suvaran testified in the Ted Bundy trial. Put yourself back in that trial like as a juror. They saved him for the end, right? The prosecution, he was their last witness. He was their star witness. And he concluded his testimony saying, it's Mr. McCrory's teeth on her body, and he did it at the time of death, right? If you end your case like that, how does the defense overcome that? Charles McCrory is convicted and sentenced to life for killing Julie. During his decades in prison, he gets a PhD in religious studies, preaches in the prison church, and mentors other inmates. His son Chad is raised by his grandparents. In many ways, he's lost both parents. I live with my grandparents most of my years growing up. They were very adamant that I make my own decision about the case, about things that have happened. Chad is now married and a father himself. Despite the circumstances, he does have a relationship with his dad. We sent cards, pictures. We talked a pretty fair bit. We call and, and with a video message and, you know, now actually helps. So uh, we, we try to stay in contact and, and he's always been very supportive of, you know, of anything I got going on. And then, 34 years after his conviction, Charles's sister brings the case to the attention of Chris Fabricant and Mark Loudon Brown. They take it on. During the time of Charles's incarceration, there's been some progress made in how bite mark analysis is being used in U.S. courts. A man named Stephen Cheney was exonerated in a Dallas murder case after a bite mark expert who testified against him recanted his statement. Chris Fabricant represented Cheney, and he wanted more than just an exoneration. In conjunction with our representation of Mr. Cheney, we filed a complaint with the Texas Forensic Science Commission asking the commission to do a deep dive into the literature and some of the assumptions surrounding bite mark evidence and produce a report, not just about Mr. Cheney's case, but about bite marks in general and what evidence there was, if any, to support some of what courts have been accepting for at least 50 years. The Texas Forensic Science Commission heard testimony about a study done by the American Board of Forensic Odontology. They sent out 100 case studies of bite marks to 39 of their most senior analysts. Those 39 analysts came to a unanimous agreement on just four cases out of 100. Four. The commission recommended a moratorium on the use of bite mark evidence in Texas and they released a scathing rebuke of the ABFO. In 2018, the ABFO made significant restrictions to its standards and guidelines, no longer allowing members to, quote, express conclusions unconditionally linking a bite mark to a dentition. But they are still allowed to testify whether or not someone can be excluded. When you exclude somebody, you're using the same level of certainty that you would if you were naming somebody the biter. So if you exclude the wrong person, you still have the same problem. So with momentum building against the scientific validity of bite mark analysis, Charles McCrory's new legal team gets to work. They decide to go back to that star bite mark witness, Dr. Richard Suveron. Mark Loudon Brown now represents Charles McCrory. He agreed to look at what he did in this case. And after looking at it, he said, 
Knowing what I know today as a forensic dentist with decades of experience, I could not and would not make, offer those opinions today. So recanted his testimony and said, you know, he couldn't not and would not say that, that this was a bite mark that Mr. Bokori inflicted. And so with that, he, he gave a sworn affidavit. And, and with that, we sought, you know, a, really, a new trial. In the spring of 2021, Charles's new legal team meets up in Andalusia, Alabama. It's the night before an evidentiary hearing where the team will be pushing for Charles to get a new trial. The prosecutor offers to agree to Charles being released for time served if he pleads guilty, but Charles refuses. Here's his sister, Renee. We spoke with him right after that had happened, and he was like, you know, I had that chance back 36 years ago. I turned it down. He said, I don't know why they would, you know, ask me again. The next day, the defense presents its case to the court. Remember, the biological material found under Julie's fingernails and the hair found in her hand were not a match for Charles. In 1985, there was one piece of evidence against Mr. McCrory. It was a bite mark. And they thought at that time that bite marks were good science. And now we know that they're not. And so he should get out. Charles McCrory and his family wait a long 10 months before Covington County, Alabama judge Charles Short issues his decision. In that time, the district attorney and chief assistant district attorney submit a four-page brief arguing against McCrory's request for a new trial. So after 10 months, and in spite of the expert witness recanting his testimony and the emergence of scientific evidence, Judge Short was unconvinced that, quote, the outcome of the trial would have been different and refused to grant Charles McCrory a new hearing. The ruling said that it didn't matter that Dr. Suvaran recanted his testimony because anyone on the jury could have seen that Mr. McCrory's teeth were a match for the bite mark. And Judge Short's four-page decision was a near duplicate of the brief submitted by the district attorneys. Mark and Chris couldn't believe it. The court waited 10 months, and we had every reason to think that the judge was maybe, you know, engaging in some analysis or thinking about weighing the different arguments and gnawing on what to do and going back and forth and... And it be, it's clear that that wasn't happening. Just waited 10 months to get around to signing the prosecution's order. Doesn't address, you know, we submitted something like a 40, 35, 40 page brief. Doesn't address any of the points we raised. And so it's clear that there was no real legal, honest legal analysis going on. I was stunned by the decision. I was stunned by the reasoning of the decision. It's a really good example of just how hard it is to overturn a conviction and a really good reason why we should stop admitting unvalidated and unreliable evidence in criminal trials because it's really almost impossible to overturn even when you have such plain facts as you have in this case. Charles's defense team is planning to appeal Judge Short's decision, but that process could take years. It's been really hard, but, you know, this is where our friends and family are too, so it was worth waiting it out and staying. We spent, it felt like maybe 20, 25 years, felt like nothing was happening, just spinning our wheels. And then all the last five years, maybe things are happening. It seems like we're, you know, we've got support now. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it's got to be 
an amazing feeling to him to feel like that people believe in him and support and that, you know, things are actually moving forward. We're waiting, but, you know, patiently waiting, I guess. And Chris believes there is still a huge problem when it comes to how much bite mark analysis is still used throughout the U.S. criminal justice system. It took 10 years of litigation at the Innocence Project to even get courts to openly question bite marks. Right now, today, prosecutor can come into court and use this technique that has convicted at least 33 people wrongfully, centuries of wrongful conviction, still admissible today. Meanwhile, Charles McCrory continues to count the days in prison where he has spent most of his adult life. In 2023, he was denied parole. He won't be eligible again for another five years. The glimmer of hope he, his son Chad, and his supportive sisters had of winning his freedom is back in limbo. Next time on CSI On Trial. How firearms analysis got its start from an infamous crime, the Valentine's Day Massacre. On the flaming battleground called Chicago. We got a nice Valentine all ready to deliver. <laughs> Valentine for bugs. Say, Jack, just make sure it's a great big red Valentine, huh? <laughs> CSI On Trial is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. Based on the CuriosityStream series, CSI On Trial, created by Eleanor Grant and produced by The Biscuit Factory. You can watch all six episodes of the video series right now at curiositystream.com. This episode is hosted and written by me, Molly Herman, and researched by Katie Dunn and myself. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Jessica Metzger is the senior producer. Virginia Prescott, Jason English, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley are the executive producers. Sound design and mix by Miranda Hawkins. Special thanks to John Higgins, Rob Burke, Rob Lyle, and Brandon Craigie. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of Peanut Butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.